Just amazing grace from God that week after week, He invites us to be with Him and filled up by His Spirit and shaped by His Word, both the living Christ who is the Word of God and the revelation that He's given to us in such grace. And so I get to come to the text today as a a pastor in your life to try and be helpful, clear, accurate, to bring some scripture to bear on your souls. That's what we do in this time. And then come down here to Jesus' table and feast and respond in song and prayer together. So let's do this thing again. Uh, We're preaching through Mark's gospel, as you know. We're finally getting toward the end. Jesus is finally arriving in Jerusalem, the city of God, where he's been slowly headed. Mark has framed his gospel in a whole bunch of beautiful ways. One of those ways is that he started this whole thing with some conflicts with religious authorities in the north, in Galilee, and now he is ending his gospel with some conflicts with some religious authorities in the south, in Jerusalem, and these are actually going to lead to the crucifixion of Christ. So this is some heavy stuff that is coming. Today's conflict, all the conflicts we're going to read about over the coming month or so, have to do with authority. If you heard when Pastor Matt read, but authority, 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 four times that word came up in this one little text. And so in order to make sense of these conflicts, we've got to deal with this idea of authority together. How many people get warm, fuzzy, happy feelings when they hear me say the word authority? So no one is volunteering to raise their hand just yet. Any, no Marines in here are like, yes, I get that. None. Okay. Uh, right. That's exactly it. The word authority is more like fingernails down a chalkboard for us, especially we Bostonian New Englanders. We really don't do authority up here. We are the home of the original tea party. Did you learn that in high school? You did, right? Charging us taxes to drink Starbucks, not here. Boom, this is us. Take that, Mother England. We took this tiny postage stamp of a state. It's a little rectangle with a hook, and we split it up into 350 autonomous cities and towns. I'm from Everett, not Malden, because I'm going to be in charge of these 2.8 square miles right here. Authority will be in my hands. Now, this is Massachusetts. You know that. But this is not just the Bostonian thing. This general posture toward authority is a human heart thing. There is something in all of us that just comes at life like this. Whenever possible, I will grasp for and hold on to authority over my life because There is nothing good about living in submission to anyone else. That's the working assumption that we bring to this idea of authority. I need to get it and hold it. Now, there's two reasons generally why we land there. The first is because we are sinners. We are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and their story is our story we would have done what they did, which was 
reject the authority of God, reject His command, His word, grasp at autonomy and independence. If I eat this fruit right here, I will have leveled the playing field and I will be like God in authority. That impulse is at the core of the sinful human heart. It's actually at the core of all the philosophical systems that man has come up with, all of them. They seem to be very diverse, but they're just different sides of the same coin. So, for example, we've come up with pantheism. All is divine. Everything is God, including me. And we have flattened reality and said, there is no above or below. There's a spark in me that's divine, and I am going to access that. And we do what? Eliminate authority. Seemingly on the total other side of the spectrum from pantheism, all is divine, is atheism. Nothing is divine. There is no divine. There is no God. But it's the same trick. Flatten reality. There's no God at all. If there is, I'm him. It's only the things that we can see and touch. There is no submission to authority. See how we work this with our big world views? We don't think it makes sense for us to submit to anyone else. Wives to husbands, sons and daughters to fathers and mothers, members to pastors, citizens to our leaders, creatures to our creator. We want authority in our hands at all times. Okay, I'll give you proof. We got pipes banging, we got fire engines driving by. I was studying at the library a couple of weeks ago and I went to take a bathroom break and as I walked into the bathroom, the lights were on and there was this little sign above the light switch that said, do not turn this switch off. Ooh, I stood there and I looked at that thing and everything in me just wanted to go bang. Who does this sign think it is telling me what I can and can't do? Take that post-it note. I am in authority of whether or not I want to pee in the dark right now, not you. Do you feel that? Because that's your heart. We grasp at and we want to hold to authority because we're sinners. Okay, good. But also, very important, we also fear, reject authority because of the ways that we have been sinned against. And I need you to sit in this with me for a little while. It's very important in our context. Over and over and over again, you and I have been sinned against by those who have been infused with authority over us. And it now feels like a matter of self-preservation for us to grasp for and hold to authority because I can't entrust it to anyone else. They're going to hurt me. I have to be God. I cannot tell you how many conversations we have had with people coming into the life of Seven Mile Road who are terrified of giving their lives, submitting their souls to one another and to the pastors of our church because of men who have been given pastoral authority and have used it in terrible ways to hurt them. And their response is to say, there is no way I am putting myself in that position again 
There is nothing good about entrusting my soul to the authority of anyone else. This is all over the marks of authority in our day. I felt this kind of thing when I was reading through, uh, you know, the girl with the dragon tattoo books. The second one, I think, is called The Girl Who Played With Fire. Good. She's got it up here. Uh, Very intense, very dark, very popular books. You read those in the week when you're not preaching and you don't have to do all the other reading that's involved with this right here. Anyway, the author was from Sweden. The books were set in Sweden. And much of the current philosophical mood of Sweden came through in the story. And one of those philosophical commitments in Sweden is to feminism. And in the book, you could sense one of the root places why they have embraced that in the life of that country, big time. Throughout the book, he posits this false dichotomy. I mean that he portrays the men in the book in only two ways. They are either portrayed as arrogant and abusive and insensitive, actually violent, sadistic animals, right, who hate women. That was a favorite phrase of his. Men hate women. Or... The only other kind of situation, relationship, man in the book, was a timid, passive lackey who submitted to the women in their lives. Michal Blomqvist. Did I say that right? Any Swedish people in the house? All right, I try. He was the protagonist. He was portrayed glowingly in both novels for being this way. Women were in authority of him. They said, jump. He said, when do you want me to come down? And that's the way it should be. In other words, what the author was saying in this, you know, fiction work was there's only two possible worlds here. It's one where men rule women, and that has proven to be awful because of the way that men naturally are. Or we have to have women in authority of men. It's the only other option. Now, of course, you're reading this and you get frustrated because it leaves out a third beautiful biblical model of manhood and womanhood that we are created in the image of God, alike but different, each for the other. But I totally get why you would land where this guy lands. Men are vicious sinners who do abuse the authority that they're given by God to harm their wives and sons and daughters all the time. And without the gospel, the only solution that seems to make any sense is for women to grasp at authority in their lives and in their homes. Do you feel that? Because you've been sinned against, you can't entrust authority to anyone else. Okay, we could give a hundred different examples of that. The point is that this is where we are with authority. We are sinners, and so in our nature, We don't want to submit to any authority other than ourselves. We have been sinned against. We are victims. And so we are terrified of submitting to anyone outside of ourselves. We think it's just me, and I have to grasp at it for myself. Until God in his grace comes to us with his gospel and shows us that there is a different and a better way that there really is a good authority in and over this world 
and that you are not him. That an infinitely holy Father, God, is the true sovereign, distinct from and set apart from and above his creatures, and that he is good, he is good in his discharging of his authority. And that the Father has infused all authority in heaven and earth in Jesus, God the Son, the Christ. And that there is life to be found, not in grasping at authority for ourselves, but gladly submitting to his authority in our lives. That's what we were made for. That's where life is to be found. That's the good news of the gospel. Okay, now that's where we're going to go together. The text is going to get us there. Everything that I said in the intro, you are now about to see in the narrative of this story. And it's going to break your heart. But I also hope that it will be helpful to you. Because you're going to see how to wrongly respond to the authority of Jesus. And hopefully that's going to compel you to say, I want to respond differently to Jesus as Lord. Okay, hear the text with me again. This is Mark's gospel. Uh, This is Jesus in conflict again. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, and they said, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered him, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, let's pray. Father, none of this will be helpful if your spirit doesn't visit us in grace. We are all over the map in this room, so I pray that you'd be good to your people here and those who have not yet become a part of the people of God, that today would be their day as we unveil the glories of Christ and his gospel. So hear those prayers, I pray that you would, and answer, amen. Okay, you ready to work this text with me together? And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, boom, stop right there. Can you even believe this based on what Pastor Joey taught us last week? This is utter craziness right here for Jesus to be showing back up in the temple again. The last time we saw him, he made this huge scene and this violent and public judgment on the temple and her leaders. This is all that anybody is talking about this morning, this day. Jesus is a wanted man especially by the religious authorities. This is like a dude from the Bronx walking into the bleachers at Fenway wearing one of those ridiculous pinstripe jerseys and an NY hat the day after somebody on the Yankees drilled Big Poppy in the head. 
this is dangerous right here. You don't show up in this joint that soon after that has just happened. You feel that with me? There's tension here. Everybody's talking about this young man, this young rabbi from Nazareth who had the audacity to assert his authority over the highest institution in Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him. Okay, when you hear all those titles bunched together, you're supposed to think authority with a capital A. There were 71 men who were invested with authority to shepherd and lead and rule God's people, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and a contingent of them come into Jesus holding on to ultimate, they thought, authority over God's people and definitely over the temple. Okay, some questions here. Was their authority an ultimate intrinsic authority that belonged to them? It wasn't, right? Their authority was not their own. It was God's. They were just under shepherds set apart to lead the people on behalf of the Lord. Their authority was not their own. It was given to them. I need you to feel that. And that was just for a time, right? Was the authority of the Sanhedrin a permanent authority over God's people? No. These men, as much as anybody else in Israel, should have been anxiously awaiting the arrival of the true authority, the Christ, the Son of David, the King. They should have been on the lookout for the anointed one to arrive in Jerusalem. And if he did arrive while they were holding this authority, what should their response, their posture have been? Immediate submission, right? And what kind of submission? You know, like, ah, grudging, disappointed, reluctant. I can't believe the Christ came while I was in charge. Oh, okay, I guess I'll give you your rightful authority. No, it was supposed to be glad, joyful, raucous, happy submission. The Sanhedrin were just stewards. And stewards are supposed to be thrilled when the rightful king, the rightful owner, comes to rule. That's what should have been going down at the end of the life of Jesus. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Is this a legitimate question for them to ask? You guys are afraid to nod or shake your head like, eh. okay, yes, totally legitimate question. They were stewards, leaders, authorities. They had responsibility over the health of the people of God. They were required to see to it that orthodoxy and order were maintained in the temple. Jesus has just done something very disorderly and seemingly unorthodox, and so they should be asking Jesus, who are you to come into this temple and to do these things, to act the way that you are acting? Who are you? 
Everyone is saying that you might be the Messiah, the Christ. Is, is this true? Can we trust you? Tell us where your authority comes from so that we'll know if we're supposed to get in line and submit to you. And Jesus says to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, so what does Jesus do here? He answers a question with a question. Now, in our culture, that's a very punk thing to do, right? Don't you hate that? When you ask someone a question and they answer your question with a question? Grace, Grace, what time are we going to eat dinner? Is your stomach the only thing that you think about? Grace, did you see my wallet? Why don't you find some place in this house where you could put your wallet so you don't keep losing it? Grace, your daughter spilled milk on the rug. Oh, she's my daughter now? Do you feel that right there? A question answering a question usually is not what we're looking for. Usually what's our motive when we do it that way? We want to avoid giving an answer. We want to mess with somebody. We want to sidestep the question. Sometimes we just want to annoy them, right? I'll ask you a question. I need us to see that none of that is what's going on with Jesus in this story. It was typical rabbinical fashion for the rabbi in love for his followers, his students, to answer their questions with questions of his own. Sometimes responding that way will give the asker a richer experience of coming to the answer. It draws the right answer out of them instead of dictating it to them. And sometimes You do this when the answer is not as important as their motive for asking the question, right? So you will answer a question with a question if you want to get at where their heart is. Okay, I need everybody to feel all of that in Jesus' response here. He is not sidestepping. He is not playing a game with them. He wants to answer. He's just making sure that their hearts are ready to hear the answer. He knows that the answer to where his authority comes from is big and huge and explosive. And it is only ready to be heard by a heart that is humble and filled with faith. That's why he answers with a question. I would love to tell you. Where my authority comes from, I will. Just answer me one question. Here's his question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay, interesting. You'll remember that at the beginning of this gospel, John the Baptist burst onto the scene out of nowhere, preaching repentance from sin and baptism in water as a sign that you are ready for the coming of the kingdom of God of God. John was the first prophet on the scene in 400 years. The last prophet to have spoken was Malachi, and everything he said seems to fit real well with who John is. And so everyone is saying, maybe he has come to prepare the way for the Christ. All of the humble, faithful, repentant people living in Israel at the time, 
they go out to the woods to be baptized by John. They receive the good news that he is bringing. They get themselves ready. They hate what's become of corrupt Israel, and they want holiness and grace and life and freedom to come back to their people. And if these authorities were good and godly stewards who loved and feared God and hated what had happened to Israel as well, they would have been right there with them saying, get me wet too. I'm anxious for the coming of the king. And they would be paying very careful attention to who might show up next. And so Jesus says, here's my answer. John, where are you at with John? Was John from God or from man? Okay, now what is the response that we are all so hoping these stewards will give in this story? These place-holding authorities, these leaders, what do we want them to say? Heaven, we believe that John was from God, Jesus. And if they had been there, repentant of their sin, anxious for the arrival of Christ, holding their authority with an open hand, saying, we can't wait for the Messiah to come and rule, Jesus would have said, yes, the baptism of John was from God and now you know where I get my authority from. You guys, I am John's king. I am the son of David. I am the Messiah. I am your Christ, the one that all the prophets and John pointed to, the great one whose sandals he was unworthy to untie. Don't you guys remember Malachi's words? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, who you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. And Jesus would have said, we're in the temple, and I've suddenly come, just like the scriptures have said. That is me. I am the one. Let me tell you about John's baptism of me. When he got me wet in the Jordan, the Father spoke. The Spirit descended like a dove, poured out on me, anointed me. Here's your answer. My authority comes from the Lord. I am here to save you and my people. And then they would have done what? They would have said, yes, okay. What do you want us to do? All 71 of us will meet you wherever you say you Tell us what comes next. We've been doing our best to lead your people. We've tried to shepherd them really well. We've held this authority as, as good as we could, but this is your temple. This is your people. My life is your life. This is your covenant. We are ready to step aside. That's what should have happened. But that's not what happens, is it? What happens? And they discussed it with each other, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why didn't you believe him? But it, shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. 
So what do they do? These men do what we all tend to do with our lives and with any authority that has been given to us. They grasp at it. They do this in part because they've been sinned against by false messiahs. You know this, right? In the decades leading up to Christ, there was lots of false messiahs who showed up and said they were somebody, and they weren't, and God's people suffered because of it. So they're skeptical, of course, but they do it mostly because they were sinners. They don't want to submit to anyone else. They have authority in their grasp, and they want to hold on to it. Don't miss this. They have a lot to lose in worldly, earthly eyes if the Messiah shows up right now. They have great comfort. They have great power. They have great privilege. They have been calling the shots for years. And so they scheme for a way to grasp and hold authority. How can we answer Jesus in a way that doesn't cause us to let go of our authority? Okay, we can't say that John was from God because then we'll be exposed for being greedy, power-hungry graspers who don't even want to respond to the clear voice of God. Can't say that. We can't say John was just a nutcase out in the woods from man because all the people who we need to continue to serve us will be against us. We can't say that. They can't find an answer that will allow them to hold on to their authority. And so what do they do? They do what all good agnostics do when they don't want to let go of their freedom to be on top. And they say, we don't know. We don't know. And you can just see Jesus' shoulders drop when it becomes clear that they're, they're not interested in knowing truth, they're not interested in what answer he has to give, they are just interested in hoarding authority for themselves. They give him a non-answer, and Jesus knows that it's not that they don't know the answer, it's that they don't want to know the answer. And so Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, Jesus says, you guys, I am not going to play this game. You are the stewards of Israel. If anybody should be ready, it's you. But if you are not ready to commit yourselves to me, then I am not ready to commit myself to you. And this is such a heartbreaking scene. Why? Because these leaders miss out on the gospel. They miss out on the glories of the kingdom of God because they won't let go of their authority. And in doing so, they seal not only Jesus' fate, but their own. Their rejection of Jesus' authority is actually an act not only of treason, but of suicide. Jesus then maps this out with the parable of the tenants you know how usually a parable is given in the life of Christ to kind of conceal and hide the meaning? This is one of those parables where it's given to bear the meaning. When Jesus is done with this parable, everybody knows what he was talking about. He says, all right, let me tell you guys a story. Once upon a time, there were some tenants or stewards, 
And they had been given authority over a great man's vineyard. And their job was to keep the vineyard and tend the garden and protect the place and bear fruit. That was their job. But instead, they grasped at authority for themselves. They wanted to rule that vineyard. And ultimately what happened was that when the great man's beloved son, his heir, comes to the vineyard, the one that they should have been delighted to see, the one that they should have received with great honor, this is the one who has given them their livelihood for all of these years. They refuse to submit to his authority. They refuse to receive him. Instead, they kill him. They think that in doing that, they will be the new authorities. And they will find life in ownership of the vineyard. But instead, their rejection of the son only results in them being destroyed. Their rejection of the good authority is suicide. And that's exactly what's going on with these religious leaders. Their temple and their titles and their whole Judaism is destroyed in 70 AD. And they miss out on the gospel. That's the story. That's this text. That's the story of the whole end of Mark's gospel, the life of Christ. Now I just want us to say, what about us? Remember, all scripture is inspired by God and is helpful for teaching and shaping us and our souls. Because their story, the story of the tenants in the parable and the story of the Sanhedrin in real time, terrifyingly, it could be your story. Every one of us finds ourselves in very similar shoes. We want to be God not just stewards of our lives under the authority of God. Your life is not your own. Neither is any of the places where you hold authority. Your life and your teaching, your coaching, your motherhood, your fatherhood, your husbandry, your pastoral ministry, anywhere that you have been given authority, including your life, it's not yours. Your body, your mind, your breath, these are a gift from a gracious and a sovereign God to you. Think of it like this. Your life and all the places where you hold authority and have responsibility is like a vineyard. And you are supposed to live in obedience to the master, bearing fruit for his glory. But what do we do instead? We take charge of our own lives, our own vineyards, for our own glory. We want to do that, and we think that we have to do that because of the ways that God, things have gone when someone else has been in authority of us. But I get to announce really good, really important, gospel news to you this morning. We are not ultimate authority. 
Jesus is. And there is life to be found in glad submission to him. What Jesus does is he comes and he sets us free from constantly grasping at authority in all the arenas of our lives. We don't have to play that game anymore. We don't have to be God. We can come humbly, open-handed, and say, Jesus, here's my life, here's my vineyard, but it's not mine, it's yours. I trust you with it. What do you want me to do with my life, with my vineyard? That is the posture that the gospel opens for us and calls us to. And you guys, to respond any other way but to say, Jesus, you are Lord, is suicide. It cuts you off from the blessings that are held out for you in the gospel. Okay, if it is sin in your heart that is keeping you from getting there, repent with me this morning. Don't miss out on or reject the glories of the gospel for the ridiculousness of a life where you are God. Don't walk in the shoes of these men refusing to confess Christ and so missing out on the unspeakable glories that come with Jesus as Lord now and forever. Instead, the constant call of the gospel is to throw open your hands and to bend your knee and to turn from your sin of holding to your life as if it's yours to believe the good news of the gospel, to be baptized into the name of Christ and say, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. If sin has kept you from that place, I want so badly to see you live. That only comes when you submit to the authority of Christ. And if it is that you have been sinned against that is keeping you from entrusting your life to Christ, Believe the good news of the gospel with me this morning. You don't have to fear the authority of Jesus. He is a good shepherd. He loves his people. He is unlike the men in Sweden, the fathers in your life, the mothers in your life, the pastors in your life. He's not like them. He is holy He humbled himself to the point of giving his life for you. You can open your hands. You can trust Jesus as your Lord. He holds out life. If you would just give up all that you're holding to, say, Jesus, you are Lord. I trust you with my life. You step into that. You finally step into freedom, into joy. There is no life in being God. There is life in receiving Jesus as God. That's the good news of the gospel that I long for becoming your story. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and get in line behind him. Receive the life that he has for you. Walk in the grace that he gives, and you will find life live like this is true life.
This only comes as God in his grace by his spirit gets involved. So let's ask for that. Father, we are sinners. We confess it. We want to be God like Adam, like Eve. We want to be at the top. We want to hold to our lives. Would you convince us that that is suicide? That there is no life in us rejecting your good authority. Jesus, we've also been sinned against by the authorities in our lives. This scares us to submit to you and the others that you've called to lead us. But I pray that we would see that you're different, that you are a good shepherd, that you want the best for us, and that our good Father has infused all authority in you and we can find life in glad submission there. Father, you know the time you've given us breath in. It is a time that hates all authority. I pray that instead this this little church would be a place where we revel in the authority of Jesus, where we love his word and his spirit, where we've received his grace, where our hands are thrown open and we have found life in his name. Come do that in us for your glory and for our eternal joy. I pray that you would come and do it. Hear my prayer and answer. Amen.